Hello, friends, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of Thanks, Morris. I am Marie, the SLP, and today I am joined by the lovely ladies from the Fanny Pack Therapist, if you know their Instagram. That's right. I have Annabeth and Mara here, the OT and SLP duo that work with pediatrics and specialize in AAC, AT, and interdisciplinary collaboration. Annabeth and Mara are paving the way for interdisciplinary collaboration, and you know how I feel about that. I love it, and I love supporting our students through a collaborative approach. So I'm so excited for you to hear from Annabeth and Mara and how they work together to provide the best learning environment for the little ones that they work with. And I'm just going to let you guys jump in. I don't know who wants to start, but tell us about yourselves. I'm super excited because you um, both bring such different perspectives into um the world of pediatrics. So, so let's talk. So yeah, whoever wants to go first. Hi, I'm Mara. Um, I am a speech and language pathologist and I've been in the world of pediatrics for about five years and all of my experience has been in an outpatient facility, but I love it because I get to wear different hats at any different moment of the day. So I love to do feeding and then social language and see older and younger kids. Um, but my like actual passion for everything is AAC and AT and those complex communication needs. And I'm Annabeth, I'm an occupational therapist. I have been working for about nine years. So my first five years of practice was in an approved private school for kids with uh, multiple neuromuscular conditions. Um, and so that's sort of where I got thrown into the world of AAC and AT as an occupational therapist because almost all of my clients were AAC users. So I had to learn um, and then moved out and started working um, in an outpatient pediatric facility where I've been for almost four years now. And there, I also like to wear a bunch of different hats. I love being a generalist now. It's broadened um, my clinical experience a ton. And I also went back to school to get my clinical doctorate um, a few years ago. And so now do a lot of program development and quality improvement and data analysis of lots of things going on in our like broader clinic company levels. So that's just another hat I get to wear and a cool part of my job. Yeah, so awesome. And so we have an SLP and an OT, which everybody knows I love my collaboration. So um, I'm just so excited to have you both here at the same time to get to kind of talk. And you both work together. So you um, have had a lot of experience working together. You run a fabulous Instagram account, um, which inspires me all the time. Uh, And so how did that all come to be? How did Fanny Pack Therapists come to be? That is a loaded question. (laughs) Um, It came to be for a multitude of reasons, I would say, but Annabeth and I have worked together for, I guess, the past four years, and we kind of um, met each other based on our mutual love for AAC and AT, and then we got a mutual client and had to work together a lot about this mutual client who had a lot of different complex communication and access needs. So we were always brainstorming new ways um, to support this client, and in those conversations, they just kind of naturally turned into our interests in general. And we just bonded as friends as well as coworkers. 
So we love all things 90s and 2000s nostalgia, which was probably what bonded us in the first place. Um, but then we also, our therapy styles are very similar to each other and we're very minimalist in our treatment activities. So we like to just kind of go in the room with nothing or just something in our hand and uh, let the session happen and see what the child does um, with the things available in the room. So with that minimalist therapy idea, we kind of were inspired to be like, you know, you don't really need anything more than a fanny pack to do a session with. And um, we love sharing our knowledge for AAC and AT. So we just kind of made, <laughs> made the account. Yeah, we did a lot of, and we continue to do a lot of um, like professional presentations together as well. And so we both love that research side of it and just like digging into like all those little nuggets of wisdom that we can share with generalists, especially because we recognize that although everybody is expected to know everything there is about AAC, especially SLPs, um, it's hard to know everything. And so we've always loved sharing that knowledge. And then Instagram was just another cool platform where we could do it in a more laid back way. Yeah. And fanny packs are back in style, might I add. So you're, I think you guys, I feel like I found your account and everything before I realized like fanny packs were like coming back. So I was like, you guys made, you guys set that trend in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> We'll take credit for it, but do it, own it. Yeah, why not? Are back in style because they definitely weren't cool at one point, but I always thought they were cool. So, right. yeah, I've got to say, we were on that trip to we went to uh, New Zealand and Australia together a couple years ago to present at um, the Isaac conference. And I think that's the first time we started talking about fanny packs because I bought a raincoat that had a built in fanny pack and it was the most awesome thing to have on a trip. Um, so yeah, at that point I was totally bought back in. Yeah. I remember I went to Europe, like what year is this? 2020. So I went to Europe nine years ago. Um, and I, the, you know, you get the little like money belts because, you know, for pickpocketers and stuff that go, they're, they're like, there's, they're not handy. They're not functional because you can't put anything in there. And now with fanny packs, I'm like, why didn't I just, why didn't I just suck it up and take a fanny pack? They're awesome. Well, you would have looked like a tourist then, right? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> but now I bet you, you wouldn't like. <laughs> yeah, probably not. <laughs> now that they sell them at, you know, Urban Outfitters, nobody looks like a tourist. <laughs> but, um, no, but I love it. And I love that minimalist therapy style. I um, I've always, I've never been one to really like know what to order when, you know, at my school tells me, oh, you have so much money, you know, go ahead, go have a shopping spree on Amazon or whatever. I'm like, I, as long as I have like my little manipulatives and something that makes a lot of noise and can sing some songs, I feel like we're pretty good, but I'll order some games that I never, you know, I use them every once in a while, but I, I have a hard time planning sessions around like lots of materials, I guess. Um, so I feel like in some way I'm that minimalist. Therapy. Yeah. I definitely noticed that just therapists, even in our clinic, were carrying around these huge bags. And I was like, how much do they actually use what's in the bags? And I've definitely been the bag lady before. Oh yeah. And I don't think I've ever opened my bag with anything because 
either the kid didn't want to do anything that was in my bag or I just forgot what was in there or something. So I was like, I might as well just walk in the room and let it naturally happen and, you know, do that child directed play and everything. Yeah. Yeah. The trunk of my car is filled with therapy materials, true confessions um, from when I was a new grad and I was like, I need to buy all the things. I see all the things in the target dollar section. Like I need all of it. But at that time I was working with kids with multiple disabilities who really, I was buying all of the manipulatives that they weren't able to access, but I just had these ideas of how, like what they could potentially do. Um, so I just had so much stuff. And when I moved out to Wisconsin, I put it all in my trunk, like went from my desk into my trunk and have not touched it. I think like the books and binders I've taken out, but the rest of it literally has sat there for four years. So yeah. <laughs> no. I'll find some in there someday. Yeah. No, I was that I was that grad student where my trunk had but that was because it was grad clinic and I didn't know what I would need and you know I just brought everything to school every day for my clients. But I feel like that's kind of how you're trained in grad school too, is like you have to prepare five materials or activities for each session Mm -hmm. and you better do a couple backup ones just in case your plan doesn't work and you know and then I don't know so I feel like we're just trained to be that clinician yeah and there's nothing I don't see anything wrong with the clinicians that can pull in all these cool materials and stuff and I'm super sometimes I'm like oh I should be more like that but then I'm like nah we had fun playing chase so I'm good. <laughs> both have its place and both are great, but yeah. Yeah. Learning in both worlds, right? Exactly. No, it's good. And it's, uh, you know, we can all learn from each other too. So that's awesome. Um, okay. So when we're talking about how you guys work together, which is like, what I'm super interested in because I work, you know, I have OTs that come in and out with, uh, for some of my students that need occupational therapy. I have behavioral therapists that come in and out for certain students that need it, but I don't get the opportunity to be like working side by side with them throughout the day, like picking their brain. And I learn so much from my occupational therapists in IEP meetings. Like they say stuff and I'm like, oh my gosh, now it all makes sense. I wish I would have known that three months ago when I started working with this child. Um, So can you explain a little bit about what it's like working together, maybe how you set up co-treatment sessions, um, you know, if there's any kind of like, if you're writing any goals together, how you might do that and all that stuff. Yeah. So I guess we do a lot of co-evaluations together, um, especially for our complex communicators. So we tend to be the ones who are doing that, that initial evaluation. And so a lot of that goal setting then is together, even though we'll have an OT plan of care and an SLP plan of care, we're, you know, making sure that we're covering all the bases and deciding when there's those overlapping um, scopes who's going to take on which piece, at least primarily. Um, But we, I mean, I guess, I think, Mara, even this has like changed a little bit over the last four years, because you and I have learned so much from each other. Um, And so I feel like our co-evaluations in general are just very, very dynamic. 
again, it's something that I feel like we don't plan too much. We're planning if we're doing standardized assessments and who's going to take which part of that. Um, but when it comes to our clients who are AAC users or um, potential users and potential users of assistive technology as well, um, we really tag team a lot of it. We Part of that is because we created an evaluation template together that's specific for that client population. Um, and so we're both just very familiar with it and can kind of fill in the gaps where they're needed. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think what's unique about our setting is our setting affords us the luxury of that we have SLPs, OTs, and PTs all in the same clinic and the office is all shared. So during the downtime when you're doing, well, this is pre-COVID, of course, right? <laughs> uh, but in the office, when you're doing your notes or your documentation, you're with the other therapists and you know who sees what child because they're usually back-to-back -back sessions or something like that. So then you can be like, oh, like, you know, I saw this kid going down the stairs and like they weren't safe. So, hey, PT, can you grab an eye on this child and just like watch them go downstairs and like, let me know what I need to do. Or it would be like, Oh, OT, I know that you saw them before and they seem super dysregulated and I know nothing about that. Can you give me some strategies of like what you would do? And, you know, oftentimes the OT strategies are something that you can incorporate in your speech session as well. Cause it's like, Oh, let's kill two birds with one stone and do this. But I think it's our setting that has kind of that luxury of um, brainstorming all the time. And then we also don't have like designated spaces. So at any minute, pre-COVID, <laughs> at any minute, there could be, you know, three different clients in sessions in the gym together. And we all work together to come up with a game of tag or, come up with an obstacle course or something like that. So in that, I get to see what the OTs are doing for the obstacle course, but then they get to see how I'm targeting my goals in that. So I think it's our setting that has a lot of like cool benefits to it. Um, but yeah, I've learned so much from the OTs and PTs in our clinic and even the other SLPs. Um, it's something that I love. I love that I get to learn from that. Yeah, and we don't technically have many true co-treatments um, that we're like billing as co-treatments, but as Mara was saying, we frequently are in the same spaces together. So Mara and I might share two clients who we see back-to-back -back and flip-flop. So we can be sort of co-treating with them over those couple of hours um, and just splitting the billing the way the way it needs to be split. So, yeah. No, that's awesome. And I get, you know, like, even though I don't have my, I don't have other SLPs and I don't have my um, OTs, I should shout out the teachers I do have on site that I collaborate with. Um, in my, I have the benefit as a preschool speech pathologist in my school district to, to still kind of retain some of that, like, we're all kind of in each other. We all share a, um, a classroom pod and we're literally like just, today at work, you know, we were, um, hey, did you get that email? Oh my gosh, what do we do kind of thing? Or for the specific students, you know, we can talk a little bit about how they're doing and what we can do together um, to right. 
to help them make progress. So I do, I do understand that kind of, but to get like, especially when you're working on those specific, you know, sometimes the OT and this and the speech or the language stuff, it, it kind of overlaps, which I never would have thought possible, but um, it's always so interesting, especially when you're working on AAC, I think, right? I don't know. You could tell me if I'm wrong. <laughs> yeah, I think so for sure. I mean, even the way that um, like ASHA and AOTA outline how that AAC and AT team should collaborate and what that should look like and how roles are delineated, um, they really don't say very specifically, here's the role of the SLP, here's the role of the OT, here's the role of the assistive assistive technologist if there's one on the team, but just like, here's everything that the team needs to know about and here's everything they need to be able to do make sure you have someone to fulfill all of this. And so, so much of that role delineation then is based on experience. And as we know, like just knowledge of the technology, which is always changing. So. And that's one thing that Annabeth and I are just on a mission for is to spread the word about like AEC and AT teams and that like the leader of that team is going to be based on your experience with that client population or the experience with the certain um, device or whatever that you are recommending because a newer SLP might not have the same experience as an OT who's 10 years in who has specialty in AAC does. So in that the OT might know a little bit more about that certain recommendation for a device or something like that mm-hmm. than the SLP and they really have to collaborate and like frame their skills to go in the session but learn from you know that you can still learn from sorry let me let me figure out how to <laughs> you can learn from each other's roles yeah but still do your your therapy yeah yeah and i think like I said, that has evolved so much in our collaboration over time. I think that in the beginning, we were more sort of split down the middle where it was like, okay, Mara is going to take on the language piece of AAC. I'm going to take on the access piece and like the motor piece and the seating and positioning and all of that. And now I feel like Mara could go in and roll with it. And I do a lot more for lots of our kids, do a lot more in the beginning for looking at those nuance, um, you know, motor patterns or seating and positioning pieces that are going to impact access. But once we have an idea of sort of what's set up, then it's very collaborative and we're both really looking at that access piece. So. Yeah. Oh, I remember when I first started with, uh, in the preschool setting, because our preschool, I didn't realize when I, when I got assigned to that specific, um, role that our preschoolers were all the way you know more on the well there were anywhere from mild to severe like you know very impaired physically needing AAC so I right off the bat you know walked into my speech room and the former speech pathologist was like oh and here's a big mac and here's your go talk and here's this and I was like I saw that once in a slide in grad school what is it like what do I do with that um and it made me very nervous and (laughs) And so it's taken a lot for me. I mean, now, like, and I, and I can admit fully, I have not, I have a very limited 
knowledge on how to implement AAC, but I know it's very client specific. And so I at least, you know, I can walk into an assessment or at least with a student who already has a goal for it and be like, okay, so let's take a look at the environment. Um, let's see where we should sit, seat you and stuff. But it's, it's always helpful to bring in that OT and their perspective or, um, you know, we have an AT specialist in our district who can come in and say, okay, here's what I think. And it's so important to have that collaboration and to help us feel successful. And like you said, learn from each other's roles and, and utilize those roles. So that way we can help our little ones or individuals in general who are using these devices. Um, It's so, I feel like it's so backwards that like, our professional organizations are like, okay, so you have to have all this knowledge in order to be a competent or a confident clinician in AAC. But then if you really look down at the breakdown, everything is expertise in. And how do you develop expertise? Experience. Mm -hmm. It's like, ah, how are you supposed to get experience without, I don't know, just never had it in a slide in grad school. You yeah, it's, it's really a niche area. That's just kind of hard to hone in your skills for that. Yeah. So is there like an AAC 101, maybe starting out like that you guys could share? Um, I don't know. I I already wrote notes down. Like maybe we'll have to do a part two and go deep into (laughs) AAC because I could, I, there's so many things I'm like thinking like, Oh, I want to know this and this, but I also want to be, uh, you know, careful with time. Um, so, um, I mean, you kind of already talked about like the roles and everything like that, but maybe like when you're looking at, um, what a client needs and talking about, you know, there's low tech AAC and there's high tech and I still don't understand like, what is, is this low tech or is this like, where are we on the spectrum of the technology? Um, so maybe like what, just maybe a brief overview of like what low tech looks like, what high tech looks like, and maybe when you walk into a certain setting, what you might use. Yeah, absolutely. So that's how we usually, we do like little AAC and AT 101 trainings to our our staff a lot. So that's exactly what we start out with. We start out with terminology. So, um, you know, unaided and aided and unaided is you don't have anything else. It's just your body. So something like sign language. Um, And then aided is something that you're bringing in to the environment, like a tool or an external thing. And then there's all the levels of technology, but a low tech would be something with no technology. So it could look like a paper and pencil. It could look like a low tech core board. It could look like... um, a bunch of different things, just um, either just like gesturing and grabbing items could be considered a low tech if you're making choices in a field of, I don't know, four objects or something. Um, And then when you move to that mid-level technology, those are something that it has a little bit of technology, but it's not sophisticated technology. So it's just like a battery or something. And that would look like your Big Macs or... um, something with like a single voice output message. And then you move on to your high tech and that's the sophisticated technology. So like an iPad app or a dedicated device that has 
pages and dynamic displays that you can navigate to symbol language. I want to just, oh, sorry. I want to point out, I, in my brain, I had all that right. <laughs> so thank you. you. <laughs> and that's, I feel like what we always are telling our, like the therapists who work with us, it's just like, be confident because you probably know a lot more than you think you know. And it's not as scary as it seems like it is. Yes, there's a lot. Yes, the technology itself, like the specifics are always changing and evolving, but the approach that you're taking is always going to be pretty similar. Yeah. And one thing that we like to um, really tell everybody when you're going into an evaluation or um, just working with the AACAT population is that as a generalist practitioner, your job is a resource f- facilitator. So your job, if you don't know all of the things, that's okay, but find you should know where to find the resources. So you should know where to find a rep to get help, or you should find your AT specialist in your district to do a consult or something like that. So your job is to know all of the resources and then navigate those resources so that that child can get kind of the best care. Yeah. That's a really good point. I remember when I was getting ready to graduate from my grad program, I was I had kind of a little moment where I was um, talking to one of my well friends and like girls I was going to graduate with. And I was like, I don't even know, if, like, did we learn anything? <laughs> like, I don't feel like I could just walk into this position and I'd already gotten hired. And I was like, I'm nervous. And she's like, Marie, you have to realize, like, we just went through two years of an intense program. We feel like our brains are mush. But she's like, we've been basically taught how to search for resources. Um, It's very true. Yeah, yeah. you were, grad school is very much like, here's the evidence behind making clinical reasoning or clinical decisions. And then all of your experience or all of your like knowledge actually comes from the hands-on doing it. So you're always learning in this field, right? Yeah. yeah. I always say to people too, like, that's why we call it a practice. We're practitioners because we're constantly practicing. We're constantly learning. And that's, I'll even say that to parents, like to start that conversation of like, you know what? I don't have an answer for you, but I'm going to help you find an answer. Here's where I'm going to start. And here's what that journey will look like towards the answer. Oh, I love that. That's why we call it a practice. <laughs> that's such a good little like, thing to remember like it's okay because we're all lifelong learners and can keep growing with this stuff as challenging as it may seem um okay I just had a random thought pop in my head but I'm curious so how are you guys doing with virtual how are you doing this virtually (laughs) that's a great question I um well, we're just doing it. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> yeah. I, so I was lucky enough to my grad school, I was on a grant for telepractice. So I actually came into this whole COVID, COVID world having kind of a lot of telepractice um, experience, which was very helpful <laughs> for me. Yeah. Um, I know everybody else is just kind of 
thrown into it, whereas I had already done it. But um, tele-AAC is something that's super cool to me. And um, I've been, I know some people out in Massachusetts who do tele-AAC like all the time. And I've been kind of following them and I I did one of my like grad school practicums with them. So it's not a new world to me, I guess. Um, but I think it's really awesome. I think it's a, a, a silver lining of what's going on in the world is that now we get to see what's happening in the home environment and then use that to, um, you know, teach teach the communication partners that are in the home environment. And that's been eye-opening to me because I've made recommendations of like, make sure their device is like out and available all the time. And then, you know, I get on a teletherapy session and it's like, oh, I don't even know where their charger is. It's like, oh, okay. I got to take a step back from my recommendations of like making sure this device is always with the kid and being like the step the first step is making sure the device is charged right and then we can work on always carrying it around or i get to see their actual home environment it's like oh the kitchen table is not a place where a device can go so let's keep it somewhere else and i've got to see kind of those unique situations at home but then also train those parents on those important things like modeling and um providing that language input and um, not taking a child's hand and just directing it towards the device for them, things like that. It's been really cool to do that parent education piece that we have been doing before, but we didn't know what level the parents were at yet. Yeah. And I think from the OT perspective, looking at access and seating and positioning and those components. Um, it's been really interesting, again, to see the parents' level of knowledge and comfort with the equipment in general and with like making adjustments to their child's equipment if they need to, because now it is more of a necessity. They don't have someone seeing their child every day. They don't have someone able to come in to make adjustments to a wheelchair or, um, you know, adjust where a switch is mounted if it's not accessible in that moment. And so it's been a cool challenge for me to be able to, um, to coach parents through that. And even just like that, a lot of troubleshooting, I guess, with that sort of technology. We've also just done a lot of troubleshooting with trying to figure out for our switch activated um, activities. We use a lot of online platforms to be able to facilitate those activities in clinic. And so at the very beginning, Mara and I were like, okay, we need to figure out if we have a client who's using Bluetooth access and that is an emulator for the keyboard, then can we share our screen and give them access to the screen and they'll be able to access the game on our screen with a switch, which we figured out and it worked beautifully. Like a few times and then every time we see this client who we're using it with it doesn't work so we have to do plan b um but it's it's been a fun challenge to yeah. figure out those pieces no that's that's so cool i didn't even think about that um and it's just it's so it's just such a testament to when you're given these kind of limitations to see how you can push yourself 
you know, and, um, and be creative and collaborate and, uh, you know, just push the envelope a little bit with the things we thought we knew how to do, because now we got to learn a whole new way to do them. Yeah. Um, so that's really, really cool. I feel like this whole COVID thing has kind of made all of us better clinicians because it's pushed all of us out of our comfort zones. No one signed up to do, well, not many signed up to do teletherapy in the first place. Um, and then we were all just kind of forced onto it. And then with only a virtual material rather than everything that you were used to. So I think it's made everybody kind of just better clinicians in general, but it's also, um, I think the sense of like, there's a vulnerability to it too, when you're in session and you, you actually don't know (laughs) what to do in that moment. And then that's, that's a beautiful moment when you can just tell the parents, like, I'm not sure, but like, let's try this right now. Do you have any thoughts? I'll do some research, get back to you, things like that. And that's okay to, to learn in that moment with the parents too. Yeah. And I think that builds a connection between us and the families, you know, like, and, and kind of going back to what you said about you have this new opportunity. Cause that's kind of been my whole, like, okay, I'm doing teletherapy. I'm going to be okay with it because I get to see inside the, the child's environment. I get to work with them now kind of the way I always wanted to, to be able to, you know, work on that parent coaching piece and then, um, see what they're utilizing in their environment. Talk about being a minimalist therapist. Like they have their toys and we're going to play with those. (laughs) Um, What toys they have access to or like what, what things they do. And it's like, okay, so they don't have a whole room full of toys. That's fine. We do at our facility, but let's figure out like, oh, you really are interested in the scooter that you have. Let's use it. That's going to be our thing. Yeah. And it better informs fringe vocabulary too, that we're prioritizing in a device. If we're looking at a really robust system, like we might have an idea of what we think should go into a system for a five-year-old, but that might not be, it's not the same for every single kiddo. And I think sometimes pre um, virtual learning, we were asking families for that input and we weren't always getting a ton of response or we were, there was a variety of, I guess that level of response that we were getting from families. So until you're in there seeing it. And again, it's that parent coaching of saying like, Hey, how often do they follow this routine at breakfast? I'm thinking of all these different words that we're using very frequently right now. Let's make sure we have access to them. And if we already do have access to them, let's make sure that the child knows how to access them and you know how to access them to be able to model that too during this routine. Yeah, because it makes it, it's more functional. Like, and that's, I mean, that's my world is making language functional for the kids. And so to see what they're, like you said, they're already using those words at breakfast time. Um, So we want to make sure that that's what we are working on. So it's repetitive and consistent and they're successful. Um, And so do you guys notice that with kind of this, um, platform of being able to directly see where the parents are at and coach them a little bit more closely, you get more buy-in from them because maybe they're learning how to use these devices a little bit better. And so they feel better equipped to be more consistent. 
absolutely. I I think I see a lot more buy-in from many of my families. I've I definitely am still working through some of some of my families who are like, oh, your your clinic is back open. We need back in because they don't make progress here. It's like actually they were doing pretty well and you were learning their device, which is what we need to be like see happen. Um, so it's still still a work in progress, but in terms of like a majority of my families, like I've seen a lot more buy-in of like, oh, we took the device in the car for the first time. It's like, yes, that's where it should be anyways. That's awesome. And like, they're like, oh yeah, they, they like functionally went up to me and requested something or said something or said my name. And like the moment that that happens, like a child says mom for the first time on a device or something like that's that's kind of an aha moment and I feel like I've gotten a little more of those those aha moments to work with in this um yeah in this situation just because the kids are at home and all the time and they need to be using that more and so parents will see it a little bit more yeah it takes the mystery out of it too. I feel like sometimes parents, I guess, aren't, don't understand what happens in the session. Even if they're getting these like tidbits of, yes, this is what we're working on. It's the how we're working on those skills that they're not seeing every day. And I think in the beginning, I felt sort of uncomfortable, at least more frequently uncomfortable because caregivers were always, always there and ones who hadn't been there previously. And I think in some situations with those parents who are um, very strong advocates for their children and have very particular ideas about um, goals and then how they want those goals to be met and when they want those goals to be met, um, but we're struggling a little bit more to see that parent carryover, this was a great opportunity for them to see like really what we're doing is play-based therapy. And when we say play-based therapy, we literally mean that the child is playing and that we're the ones making sure that they are meeting their goals. And it's something that you can do at home and not to say like your child doesn't need therapy, but that's what we're here for. It's, we're here to do that the one hour a week and to make sure that you're able to do it 50 more hours a week because that's how they're going to learn. That's how they're going to progress. So I think that's been a huge silver lining as well. Yeah, that's exciting. It's exciting for me because I start teletherapy next week. So I'm like, this is just making my heart so happy. <laughs> I feel a lot better. <laughs> so thank you. Um, because, you know, that whole, that power, that parent empowerment piece is so, especially, I, I think family empowerment is really what I should say. Because if you're from little ones to, you know, working in, when I was working in um, an inpatient rehab center during grad school, like I worked with the families and during, you know, the discharge meeting, the families are kind of like, well, what do, how do we, what do we do? And so um, I think training the families and just making them feel like they can do what we do. I mean, you don't, I, I don't, not to take away, not to create less jobs for us or anything, <laughs> because we are here for a reason. We're here, we specialize in this so we can help um, like you said, the consistency of that. It's, you know, because we're going to then the next week, what do we do? We bring new activities and new challenges and um, assign new homework or whatever we, we want to do that we know kind of, okay, now it's the next step to meet this goal or 
um, if you're working with AAC, okay, how are we going to expand on this? So, yeah, super important, super powerful for families. It is. You know, a lot of cool things happen with siblings too of like, oh, the siblings are jealous that so-and-so's on the computer. Well, they come over and then it's a very awesome learning opportunity for the sibling to either learn, learn a little bit more about what their sibling is working on, or if it's an AAC device, like sometimes they, like I can give them a challenge to find a vocabulary word and model it and tell them how that should look. And then they do it and they get excited. And then there's buy-in to the device from the siblings. And a lot of times when there's like peer or same aged sibling buy-in, that's when you get a lot more client buy-in too. Yeah, that's, I think I've told this story on the podcast before about my little girl. We were working on just activating a button um, and doing speech, just generating that that speech from a familiar song. So I brought in, we worked on the same song all year. She didn't show much motivation to hit it with just me. And then I started thinking, what if I bring in peers? What if, because she has this little group of girls that really, she really lights up around. So I brought them in um, with parent permission to see what would happen. And so they would each take the turn. Well, one of the little girls, one of the peers, got really excited to push the button when it was my student's turn. And so she pushed the button and my student, who was nonverbal, just screamed and just put her hands back and was so mad that her turn got taken. She was so motivated because of her peers. And I was like, dang it, why didn't I do this earlier? But it's just so, it's so cool to see that. So yeah, the siblings and, um, you know, I've told families if if I've got a student that's an only child, do they have cousins around their age? You know, anything, bring them in and, and have regular play dates and have the, you know, the cause and effect toys out, have all the things that, that we're working on, you know, to make language more functional. Right. And sometimes you can get pretty good ideas of what, like if a child isn't motivating and whatever you're doing isn't working, sometimes you get really good ideas of like from their siblings. And I've actually found out like, a lot of my clients, like, they were not interested in a lot of the things that I brought in. Like, I brought in, I had one client, and I heard that she really liked princesses and dolls. So I, like, brought in a bunch of things and books that were princess-themed, and she just would not do anything. And then I, like, had an idea. I was like, maybe she just wants to talk, and that's all she wants to do. And I've seen her for a couple years now, and now all, all we do is talk. We have no plans. She just wants to talk. And like, that's just what she wants to do with her peers. That's what she doesn't want to play dolls. She doesn't want to play princesses. She wants to talk. And it's so cool because now that she has a system that she can talk on, we just talk. And it's like, that's so cool. But I would have never like, yeah, like you try to bring in motivating activities, but sometimes the peers are like, oh, we just like say hi to her and talk. And then it's like, oh, that's what you want to do. You just want to talk. Yeah. yeah. They want to be social, right? <laughs> we are like most of us. <laughs> but yeah, that's, that's so cool. That's awesome. Um, I really want to ask you guys about parent-teacher buy-in and training because that's where um, – you know, as a school-based SLP where I'm at, but we have, 
I know we have limited time and I don't mean to rush you. So <laughs> um, I know we also kind of wanted to go into a little bit of work-life balance and what that's like. So I'm kind of putting you on the spot, but would you be open to doing a part two for AAC and, and doing the teacher buy-in part then? So we yeah. can, okay. Cause I really want to get into that. And I'm like, I feel like, especially with my position, I have, um, I just probably have more questions really is what it is. We can talk about AAC yeah. all <laughs> hours. So a part two for that probably sounds, it does. Sounds good. <laughs> I, as long as I don't, I just don't, I feel bad. I'm like, if you guys are like, no, we're good. <laughs> oh, bring it on. We'll do more. All right, cool. Um, so we'll transition a little bit because I think that was a good little like snippet of your guys's AAC knowledge and all my questioning. But um, you talked a little bit about that minimalist therapy style. And I feel like personally, that's something that has, for me, having that kind of mindset of it's okay, I don't need to have all these elaborate things right now. It kind of helps me stay calm when it comes to planning. Um, and gives me a little bit more balance in my life, I feel like. So, um, you know, thank you for that already. But um, do you, what are some of your guys's like tips on that work-life balance? Because you guys are hard workers. <laughs> you seem to do a good job of that. Yeah, I think, oh, you can go ahead, Mara. I was just going to say, I think Annabeth and myself are even different people and we have very different things of what works for both of us. For me, um, I've just been kind of able to turn things on and off a little bit easier than some of my colleagues and uh, peers. But I guess that minimalist therapy style kind of just works for me because I don't plan sessions. I don't think I've planned a session since grad school. And I just walk in, I'm like, well, we'll figure it out. And it it works out. Um, so like my style is just kind of winging it. And then that takes off a lot of the front load of like, oh, I don't have to plan all these sessions and things. I get ideas for clients all the time. And at night, any time of the day, I get ideas for clients. So what I do is I just like write it down if I need to remember it. And then I put it away until the next morning when I'm at work. So I don't actually look at those things or those ideas until I'm at work because those ideas are natural. They're going to happen um, at any time. And we we're caring people. We think about our students and our clients and families all day, every day, right? So I just like write down an idea or something that I need to check up on, put it away. Um, and then for me personally, like walks are what clears my head. So just go on walks, take my dog for a walk, something like that. Um, and that's how I kind of do my work-life balance. But I know Annabeth has a couple more things that she does. Yeah. I feel like I've had more of a, a journey with my work-life balance in the beginning as a new grad. It was definitely much harder for me. And one of those pieces I think was just being able to like turn it off and turn off like the constant brainstorming and thinking about my clients and what was going on in their lives outside of the time that I was seeing them at school. Um, and the school that I worked at had a residential component to it as well. So I had lots of students who lived right at the school. I also lived like 
down the street from it. So I'd like on weekends be walking past and like see them all outside and like, of course, stop by because I can't not stop by. Um, but I realized over time that that just was, was bringing stress or bringing just more into my life, not necessarily bad stress or negative stress, but um, I just didn't have that time to turn off. Um, so particular things that I do um, to be able to unplug are yoga and um, a lot of like journaling and mindfulness as well. I've been getting a lot more into journaling recently, um, which I always was as a kid, like I was a daily journaler from like through middle school and high school. Um, and I've tried to get back into that habit, even like a line a day. Um, so that's been a really consistent piece of what I do. I also, like Mara, I have my work email off my phone because that hasn't always been the case. Um, and so that's one way to like really make sure I'm unplugging. Um, now in my position, it's not as much as us that I have trouble turning off um, like the client piece of it, but some of my more like administrative pieces of my job just roll all the time. Um, and so just making sure that I really set limits for myself at a certain time that I'm done for the night and knowing that like, okay, if I'm working a little bit later, a certain night, then I'm not going to start up if I don't have to until later on the next day and just limiting the number of hours that I'm working in a week, um, which has been a little bit more chaotic and hard to navigate in this virtual world as our schedules have changed just a ton um, because we've been accommodating more clients and clients in different ways. And um, so that's been been a journey too over the last few months. And one thing that I like to do since we're in a virtual world is dedicate a space to work and then I'm not allowed to work anywhere else. So I have a home office. I can set my work computer there. I can turn it on there. I can do work tasks when I'm in there, but I can't do it when I'm not in there. And that's that separation piece has really helped me of not bringing like, oh, well, the couch is nearby. I can just bring my work computer and sit on the couch and do it. But then you do it for much longer. So that sep like that physical separation has also really kind of helped me in this virtual world too. Yeah. Wow. I, I, my first year, my clinical fellowship year, I had my work email on my phone. I was tied to it. I left work late. I took work home, which clinical fellowship, I mean, it's hard. You're figuring it all out. But one of the things, one of the pieces of advice I got was take your work email off your phone. And so I, uh, I did. Oh my gosh. And it cleared up so much. Like I just stopped checking it after my contract day was up or, you know, maybe give 15 minute grace period or whatever. But, um, and then one thing I did try to do my last two years is not check my email until after my first two sessions, which is hard. Um, and like, it's funny because my mom's also a teacher and she's like, how do you do that? I wouldn't know what's going on if I didn't check my email first thing. I'm like, well, someone will tell me, I hope. <laughs> but it, it, it made me so much more productive and just kind of calm. I wasn't because I didn't get sidetracked with anything, which I think was super helpful. Now it's a little bit hard because that's kind of where I have to be like on my email. That's how I'm working right now. <laughs> so, um, but I yeah, that's really little phrase that like has helped me is that the work world will go on whether you're actively being a part of it or 
you get to be a part of it the next day. So the work world will continue moving on regardless if you're working till nine o'clock at night or you start at 8 a.m. And that's kind of like helped me of like, oh, things do, the ship still sails without me in it all the time. And that's really helped me. (laughs) Yeah. And I think it keeps you accountable for just like the way that you're managing the time that you are in work then. And just for realizing, um, you know, if there, if you are taking on too much or it it empowers you to say no when you're like, Hey, I'm doing everything I can for these 40 hours a week or whatever you are contracted for. And for that reason, I can't take on anymore. Um, so yeah, you know that you have to get going. So I know I did this to myself though, guys, I'm sorry, but I'm tr- I'm just checking my phone. Sorry, just to make sure my next. I'm I'm okay. I have like a few minutes, but I will say um, we will say goodbye to the to the listeners for now. I'm excited. I'm I'm just I'm booking you. You're coming back. Awesome. <laughs> so thank you both so much for all your information and for taking time to do this. Um, it's been awesome. All right, friends, that's the end of this episode of Thanks, Morris, but Annabeth and Mara will be back for a part two to dive deeper into how we can help parents and families and teachers use AAC to become the best communication partners for our students or our clients. So please stay tuned for that in the coming weeks. You can find Annabeth and Mara at the Fanny Pack Therapist over on Instagram. I will link that here for you in the notes, so it's just a click away. As always, you can find me over on Instagram at Thanks Morris and on my website, thanksmorris.com. Feel free to reach out to me, DM me, email me, go to my website and fill out a form where you can um, nominate yourself to be on the podcast, ask any questions that you'd like answered on the podcast, or nominate somebody else that you would like to hear from. If there's a SLP out